to see the Foxes here. We've missed you guys. It's just wonderful to have you with us. We look forward to having some time with you this week and also uh, hearing from Dave next Sunday in our kickoff. And it's a special treat to have my friends from college here, Mark and Don Powell. Mark's an attorney in Wichita, and Don runs his office. And uh, uh, please don't embarrass yourselves after the service by elbowing and pushing and shoving to get to Mark to get those stories about how I really was in college. Let me start this morning by reading the Super Bowl translation of our primary text for this morning. You have the text on the cover of your bulletin, uh, but here's the Super Bowl translation of that. They were fans of the Giants' story, and they were always together with other Giants fans for the big game and shared tailgate delicacies as well as fervent pleas to the God of their choice for a Giants win. Now, as I thought about this morning's message, I couldn't resist the thought of how we can learn something from secular forms of worship. Now, of course, all Giants fans or all sports fans are not worshipers. I don't mean to imply that. Those of you who know me know that I do enjoy sports and would classify myself as a fan of my favorite teams. So this morning, this isn't a slam against sports in general or against sports fans, but can we agree that this sort of national holiday, almost holy day, called Super Bowl Sunday, illustrates something about what it means to be a fan, or better yet, a fanatic about something. Now think of it, and it's not just in the context of Giants fans, that's a helpful thing to remember since the Super Bowl was last week. We can find the same level of fan interest in different sports, college and pro, and even high school, almost anywhere in the country. But there are clearly over-the-top and bad examples of this kind of behavior. But they're hidden in these ideas, good examples of what it means to be devoted to something, seen clearly in the sports fanaticism and some elements of our culture. Why would we look to secular worship to learn something? Well, let's think of it this way. How often do you find churches that look in some way and have some of the characteristics of Giants fans, or for that matter, OU fans or OSU fans. Now, I'm not talking about the yelling and screaming and jumping up and down at ball games. I've always heard and hated that analogy. You know the one I'm talking about? It's the one that says you get all excited at a ball game, and you shout and you jump up and down, but why can't you do that at church? I've always hated that analogy. I think it's a bad analogy. Do you really want to compare coming into the presence of the maker of the universe, the king of kings and the lord of lords, to a ball game? I mean, come on. It's a bad analogy. It's fine to get excited about worship. It's also okay to worship quietly at church and then shout at a ball game. That doesn't have anything to do. It doesn't say anything about one's faith or the reality or the real devotion of one's worship style. I've heard that analogy used by preachers a few times, and I, at first I felt a little bit convicted, and then I began to think about it. And then I didn't feel so convicted. As we think through what, for example, a sports fan can be like, let's relate this to our faith and our practice, and let's see if there's any practical applications. So be thinking with me as we work through this. Of course, the word fan is derived from the word fanatic. And a fanatic is a person with an extreme, uncritical enthusiasm or zeal, as in religion or politics or sports. Now, a, a devotee 
is a milder term than any of the foregoing ideas and suggests enthusiasm but not to the exclusion of other interests or possible points of view, like a jazz devotee, which says in the dictionary, see Jim Garrett. Now, the definition of fan is an enthusiastic devotee, as of a sport or a performing art, usually as a spectator. It's an ardent admirer or enthusiast, as of a celebrity or a pursuit, like a science fiction fan, and it's probably short for fanatic. It was first used that way in 1682. Now, we all know someone like this, don't we? Maybe some of us are someone like this. With this person, everyone he meets knows about his love for the team. He can make any conversation, regardless of its content or its context, about the team. He can make any interaction become a celebration of his favorite star player. The conversation he starts are almost always about the game. And what's more, fans want to look like their heroes too, don't they? They wear their jerseys. They buy the products their heroes endorse. They watch TV shows breaking down every single angle of every single play. They want to know the details of their heroes' personal lives. And sports fans also attempt to pass their love of team onto their children, don't they? Don't we see this? We see it of sports, but also of celebrities or hobbies or activities. We see that, don't we? Now, again, be thinking about this and how it relates to our faith. Let me tell you about another group of fans. These fans, or devotees, were passionate too. And if you knew them, you knew they were devoted to their team. You probably didn't even have to ask them about it. Their conversations with anyone they knew often turned very quickly to their love for the team and especially for the superstar of the team. They wanted to look like their favorite player too, but not so much externally as in wearing jerseys, but in their attitude and in their behavior. They wanted their lives to reveal that they were part of this team too. And they definitely wanted their children to learn love for the team too. And of course, the group we're talking about here is the early church. And these people in the early church were fans, if you will, devotees for certain, of Jesus. And they were described this way in Acts 2.42. Now this is a different version than the version I just read. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Here we see what was important. What were the priorities of the early church? Over the past several weeks since we began the new year, We've seen an emphasis on most of the things that are mentioned in this verse, brought out in the various messages that we've heard. For example, we've been encouraged to reemphasize and focus on our prayer life. We've been encouraged to live lives of repentance. That was a significant part of the apostles' teaching. The early Christians were devoted to four things we see in this verse. They were devoted to apostolic teaching or doctrine. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, and they were devoted to the prayer. Now today we're going to look at what it means and why it's important to be devoted to the fellowship. We're just going to focus primarily on that one idea. Jim Garrett wrote a paper for the Conclave a few years ago called The Meeting, and he noted something rather important about this passage of Scripture. And again, it shows how important context is and language. And Jim noted in this paper, he said, and to the fellowship must refer to something definite because of the definite article, that is the word the. 
It could not mean that these Jerusalem believers were devoted to the experience of fellowship or just fellowship in general. For one thing, the expression certainly conveys a commitment to the local body of believers, the community of the saints. So when it says the fellowship, it means for most of us here, unless you're visiting, it means TCF. Of course, there's nothing wrong with having real, genuine fellowship with other believers outside of TCF. But it's important to look at what the word devoted means here. The word is translated continued steadfastly in the King James. And it means that the early believers persevered in or they adhered to. And this record in Acts is the inspired record of the result of that. The word rendered continued steadfastly means attending one, remaining by his side, not leaving or forsaking him. Now here's a Bible dictionary definition of this word. It means to tarry, to remain somewhere. We can see other verses where this word is used. To continue steadfastly with someone, to cleave faithfully to someone. Referring to those who continually insist on something or stay close to someone. And of course the way it's used here, it's used metaphorically of steadfastness and faithfulness in the outgoings. In other words, the habits of the Christian life. So our English translation, devoted here, is a really good rendering of this word. Let's look at what that means in English. Devoted means zealous or ardent in attachment, loyalty or affection, a devoted friend. It's characterized by loyalty and devotion, as in a devoted fan. We just looked at that. Or he is devoted to her. We're talking about maybe in a marriage relationship. Let's also take a look at the word that's translated here as fellowship. This word is a whole lot more than church potlucks. The word here is koinonia. In the context of this verse, it means to share in, to fellowship with, to participate. In other words, as Jim has said in his uh, New Year's message, we're in this together. That's what koinonia means. And this here means everything. We're in everything together. We're fellow sharers of life in the Son of God. We rejoice with each other. We weep with one another. Our very lives are lives of one anothering. We share all of life together and especially those most important things of God that we highlight each Sunday and each Wednesday night. And each time we're together outside of those Sunday meetings and those Wednesday meetings. When we share meals with one another, when we meet together to discuss any work or business of the church, when we minister together, when we minister to each other outside the church building, when we visit each other in the hospital, when we pray with each other about problems or challenges, when we bring encouraging words to one another, when we're at each other's weddings, when we're at each other's funerals. This is the one anothering. This is the fellowship. This is the koinonia, koinonia, the sharing that this verse is referring to. Now, the word rendered fellowship, koinonia, is often rendered communion. It properly denotes having things in common or participation, society, friendship. It may apply to anything which may be possessed in common or in which all may partake. Thus, all Christians have the same hope of heaven, the same joys, the same hatred of sin, the same enemies to contend with. Thus, they have the same subjects of conversation, of feeling, and of prayer, or they have communion in these things. And this means 
that they were united to the apostles and participated with them in whatever befell them. Christians feel that they are a band of brethren and that however much they were separated before they became Christians, now they have great and important interests in common, united in feelings, in interest, in dangers, in conflicts, in opinions, and in the hopes of a blessed immortality. Isn't that good? We're a community. We're a society of believers in Christ. We're a fellowship. And in Acts 2.42, it says that the early believers weren't just part of the fellowship. They were devoted to the fellowship. Now, why is this important for us today? This is one of those messages that's been rumbling around in my brain for months. I look around and I see so many of us here about whom we could legitimately, genuinely say, this person is devoted to the fellowship. But then I also wonder how many of us are not there for whom that would not truly be an accurate description of us. Though there's much more in what it means to be devoted to the fellowship, as we're already beginning to see, there is a prerequisite for all of us. We need to be here in this place. We need to be together and we need to be here most of the time. Now, you know what? I could get up here this morning and I could list a bunch of poor excuses for not being here. I could give you a standard of how many times a month you had to be here to be truly devoted to the fellowship. But you know what? I'm not going to do that this morning because we want to be guided by the Word of God and the Word of God doesn't give us such a list. In other words, a list that says these are legitimate reasons to skip church or not be really involved in the church, and these are not. There is no such list in the Word of God. But I will say what the Word does tell us. It helps us set priorities here that each of us are then expected to work out before God in the practical realities of our own daily lives. And one of those priorities is very clear in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning. It says they were devoted to the fellowship. Now that may look a little bit different for you than it looks for me. I guess I'd just like to see us asking this question just a little bit more often. I don't want to get legalistic about that. Surely do not want to go there. But are we devoted to the fellowship, to our benefit and to the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ? There are a lot of good reasons to be devoted to the fellowship, some of which we've already seen, but we're going to spend the next few minutes looking at some specifics that take us beyond the general idea that this should just be a priority in our lives. Why should it be a priority in our lives? There's a professor at Westminster Seminary named Carl Truman, and he writes this. He says, church involvement is absolutely critical for any healthy Christian life because it comes a basic reality check. Most Christians spend their weeks surrounded by people who are not Christians, being exposed to ideas, images, and values which are antithetical to Christianity, which sells us the myth as if it were reality, which teach us that madness is sanity and sanity is madness. Time spent with brothers and sisters in Christ on the Lord's Day is thus time spent resetting your moral, spiritual, and intellectual bearings. Just a little bit more. Hang with me here. He also continues to write, you need to be there. And in nearly two decades of teaching, I have never yet met a student who messes up badly at an intellectual level 
who did not first mess up at an ecclesiastical level, whether through wrong choice of fellowship or no choice of fellowship at all. Put simply, if you are not involved in a church, then do not look for sympathy when your life leaves the rails and dives into a ditch. That's pretty strong, but it's true. Being devoted to the fellowship is spiritually protective for us. It's a vital way that God uses to keep us on track. Another practical reason to be devoted to the fellowship is that being devoted to the fellowship helps to teach us what it's like to love like Jesus. Charles Colson wrote, we are wired for connection. Genuine human flourishing is only really possible in community. Of course, real communities are messy and involve compromise and even sacrifice, which is why we try to make do with substitutes like the internet. This connectedness is at the heart of Christian teaching about love, both for God and for each other. In our radically individualistic culture today, embracing that connectedness is maybe the most countercultural thing that we can do. So there's a truth that this one anothering that we're talking about here this morning, we're called to do as part of the fellowship, it involves real challenges. Because you know what? This may come as a surprise to some of you, but some of us are more lovable than others. But because we're in this together, because God can equip us to look beyond ourselves and to care for the needs of others, we can learn to love. We can learn to be shaped in the image of Christ and in the image of the way he loves. But one of the things that this shaping requires is that we are devoted to the fellowship. We can't have relationships in the local church unless we're here, unless we're connected in a significant way. And we can't be connected in a significant way unless we're here a lot and involved in more than just showing up on Sunday mornings once in a while. Let's highlight a few passages that help flesh out this idea. Romans 12.10 tells us, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. How can you do that if you're not here? Romans 14.19, so then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Let's look a couple things about this verse. First of all, it says, let us pursue. The NIV says here, make every effort. And the Greek there implies to follow after or to press hard or to pursue with earnestness and diligence in order to obtain, to go after with the desire of obtaining. So what's implied here? First of all, what's implied is that it's not easy. Sometimes pursuing peace with one another is difficult. Secondly, it takes effort. Why would you have to be earnest or diligent if it came easily? That's another aspect of this one another life that we're called to as members of the same body and as those who are devoted to the fellowship. It's not always easy. It requires going after these things with the desire of getting there, actually obtaining these things. It requires diligence. It requires perseverance. It requires patience with one another, right? But it's worth it. It's worth it. Why is it worth it? Let's look at the results that are written of here. Peace with one another. The building up of one another. Our faith 
our moral strength, our spiritual strength is built up. It benefits because of our relationships with one another as each of us pursues those things that build each other up. Yes, staying in a church can be spiritually challenging because wherever you go, people are people, and some of the people are going to rub you the wrong way. And it seems that there's a lot of people who are no longer willing to face that challenge. This kind of growth in self-understanding in things like patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, those fruits of the Spirit, it takes place when we stick together. It takes place when we're devoted to the fellowship and with all that means. Now, this is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the messy process of interpersonal conflict. Long-term relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. Let me say that again. Long-term relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. The truth is that people who stay grow, and people who leave do not grow. We all know people consumed with kind of a spiritual wanderlust. We never get to know them well because they can't seem to stay put. They move from church to church, and they avoid conflict, always searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. They're like trees, repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil. They're like spiritual nomads who fail to put down roots and they seldom, seldom experience any kind of lasting, fruitful growth in their Christian lives. It's tied to their inability to stay connected to the body of Christ. A writer by the name of Joseph Hellerman writes this. He says, despite what we know about spiritual growth, nearly all churches in America are characterized by an unwillingness of members to commit themselves deeply to their respective church. For some, it means church hopping. For most, it means keeping the church at arm's length. That is, living as if the individual's life is primary and that of the church is secondary. This is a challenging idea, isn't it? Social scientists have intensively studied the particularly pervasive loss of social capital and lack of genuine community that characterize life in America and in its churches. They've concluded that we are a radically individualistic society oriented toward personal fulfillment in ways profoundly more me-centered than any other culture or people group in world history. It is our individualism our insistence that the rights and satisfaction of the individual must take priority over any group to which one belongs that has seriously compromised our ability to stay in relationship and grow with one another as God intends. Isn't that an indictment on the church? Hopefully it's not an indictment on any of us. But the early church, again, back to this passage of Scripture, was devoted to the fellowship. Now, we have to be careful here. We can tend to romanticize the early church and make it seem more ideal or perfect than it really was and assume that it doesn't apply to us today because of that. In our house church, we just completed studying the book of Acts, and we saw God move through the apostles as well as ordinary believers. We saw God accomplish all that he desired in spreading the gospel despite the opposition, despite the persecution. But you know what else we saw as we studied? We saw contention between believers. It was there. It was all the good, the bad, and the ugly 
was there in the book of Acts about the early church. The idea is that they were people just like us. So while Acts 2.42 tells us that the early church in Jerusalem was devoted to the fellowship, we believe that's true, we should not assume that this was any easier for them than it might be for us. Surely, surely they dealt with similar challenges as we do. Challenging personalities, people who are difficult to love, maybe music they didn't care for, maybe a preacher who was just kind of okay. But the fact remains that they were described as devoted to the fellowship. When we're devoted to the fellowship, we're following the pattern of the early church. When we're devoted to the fellowship, we have more of an opportunity to use our spiritual gifts. We can find our place of service. When you're devoted to the fellowship, you demonstrate a level of commitment to a spiritual family. It shows you're more than a bystander. When you're devoted to the fellowship, you can begin to develop a balanced Christian life. And balance is not a dirty word. It's a good thing, actually. We all have the tendency to gravitate toward extremes. We can find balance with each other. In the fellowship, we're interrelated. We're interdependent. This is a good atmosphere for growth in Christ. And isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to grow in Christ. As we sharpen each other, our contact with other believers helps to bring balance. Being devoted to the church gives you the wisdom of an abundance of counselors. In uh, Proverbs eleven fourteen, it tells us where there's no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. The fellowship is a great place to find safety. We have older, more mature believers mixed in with younger believers, and we can actually learn from each other. Being devoted to the fellowship helps us find the joy of serving others. We see Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do that we should walk in them. This happens in many places, but our local church is a great place to serve. Sanctification is a community project, John Piper said. And that community, by God's design, is the fellowship. It's the local church. Consumers compare. Consumers critique. Consumers complain. But we don't come to church as consumers. We come as communers. We're communers. We're not consumers. We come not to consume, but to commune and to serve. Becoming devoted to the fellowship is not a burden. It's a gift. It's a gift. And it's a necessity for us as followers of Christ. It doesn't tie us down. It anchors us in the storms of life. Even the faults of the fellowship become opportunities to love and to serve. John Stott wrote, If the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? And this begs the question, is our church just one of those things on our very long to-do list? And we all have pretty long to-do lists. Is it on the outskirts of our lives? We began by looking at what a fan looks like, even a fanatic. We easily see 
what that looks like because we all have some version of that in our own lives. I mean, if we're honest about it, right? It could be sports, it could be music, it could be hobby, it could be a club or an activity. And you know, there's nothing wrong with these things in their proper place. There's nothing wrong with these things. But how is our devotion to the fellowship? And how is that revealed in our lives? I've just got a few ideas here. And I've adapted these ideas from a book by Josh Harris called Stop Dating the Church. Kind of an interesting concept. First of all, we join. We become members. And following that, we make a genuine commitment. We put down roots. And third, we make the fellowship a priority. We build our lives around priorities. Building your life around the church means making it the kind of priority that secondary concerns flow around and not over. Our devotion to the fellowship is also revealed when we find ways to serve. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Serving, if you think about it, serving is the easiest and the fastest way to feel a sense of ownership in our church. And it's also a great way to build relationships. And that's another thing that's revealed, that reveals how devoted we are to the fellowship. And we've said this before, but I'll say it again. Church is a team sport, but it's also not a spectator sport. Another way we highlight our devotion to the fellowship is to give. Now think about this. When you work and you get paid for what you do, that's a tangible return on your investment of yourself, of your time, of your energy. For the believer, giving is an expression of worship, recognizing that all we have is from him and belongs to him. Being devoted to the fellowship means it's the first place you invest financially. You know, we noted at the beginning that people who are fans almost instinctively want to share their love of whatever it happens to be, their fandom, if you will, with others. This is another illustration of our devotion to the fellowship. We share this with others. We share it with others. Of course, since the entry point and the reason for our devotion to the fellowship is our life in Christ, what we share first is our faith. We tell people about the good news, about the transformation in our lives, but then why are we sometimes reticent to tell them about our family of faith, too? When we are truly devoted to the fellowship, we do this. Let's look at one final way we devote ourselves to the fellowship. One thing that's really true, and this is a plug for the leadership of this church, when we're devoted to the fellowship, we make the job of church leadership a joy. This is borne out in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, which reads, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, we're not going to get into the groaning part, okay? (laughs) That's a whole other sermon. But let me give you a good example of what this scripture describes. And I share this story with permission. Most of you know Mike Bros. Mike, raise your hand. If you don't know Mike, there's Mike over there. Mike and Marin have been at TCF for a couple of decades now, but there was a season in his life when Mike could not honestly say that he was devoted to the fellowship. 
The first sign of that reality in his life is that his attendance was very sporadic. He wasn't here very often. Mike will admit today that it went a whole lot deeper than that. His walk with Christ at that time in his life was not as important to him as it had been previously in his life. But several years ago, Mike hit kind of a point of crisis, and God got his attention, and he turned things around in a very significant way. One of the first things that this turnaround meant was that there was a newfound devotion to the fellowship in Mike. All of a sudden, after a period of fairly sporadic attendance, Mike was here, and he was here a lot. And then after many years out of being involvement with a house church, Mike once again added this element to his spiritual life. And I have to tell you, if you talk to Mike now, this is a man who is devoted to the fellowship, but he's devoted to the Lord. He's passionate about his faith. I can see that so clearly in our conversations. He has a true desire to grow in Christ. I was telling Jim Grinnell just a few weeks ago after we'd had a house church meeting and Mike had called me up and we dialogued about something we'd discussed the previous night and he was asking for resources. He wanted to know more. He wanted to study more. I was telling Jim it encouraged and blessed me to see Mike's hunger for the Word of God and his desire, not just for the Word of God, but to integrate all of his life with his faith in Christ. It really does, in fact, bring me joy. As one of the leaders of this church, it brings me joy, just as it says in Hebrews 13. But let's take a look at what it says at the end of this verse. It says, let them, the leaders, do this, in other words, watch over your souls, with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Think about that, continuing with the illustration of Mike's life. I can function as a leader of this church with joy when it comes to Mike. But that's an advantage not just to me. That's not just for my joy, but it's an advantage to Mike. It's an advantage to Mike. So to take this analogy further and to tie it what we're looking at today, Mike's devotion to the fellowship and his devotion to the things of God brings me joy and not groaning. And that's an advantage to Mike in all the ways that we've looked at here this morning. Acts 2.42 tells us they were devoted to the fellowship. And as we close and as we anticipate the beginning of our missions conference next Saturday, or Sunday, I should say, let's think about it this way. The early Christians were devoted to the fellowship. But what happened then? What happened next? Well, they were trained. They were released into the harvest, and the harvest was indeed plentiful. The most significant outgrowth of their devotion to the fellowship was a clear sense of mission and the joy of seeing people both near and far come to Christ. Isn't that a great thing to think about? When we're all devoted to the fellowship, we have a firmer foundation for what God wants to do not just in us as individuals, but through us as a body, through us as a fellowship. Amen? Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this wonderful example of the early church and how they were devoted to the fellowship. We pray that you'd help us to ask that question and ask it regularly. Are we devoted to the things that the early church was devoted to, the apostles' teaching? and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayer. We thank you, Father, for this clear admonition from Scripture. 
And we pray, Heavenly Father, that your spirit would bring a sense of what's right for each of us, not a list of do's and don'ts, not a list of what's right and what's wrong, Father, but a sense of priority directed by your Holy Spirit, what's supposed to be important in our lives, and that we would be guided by your word as we set the priorities in our lives, and that we would truly be a people who are devoted to the fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.